pray with me, please. Lord, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, by your spirit, you inspired men to write your word, to let us know who you are. Lord, we look at the creation. We see your power. We see your your, your, uh, divine nature. But we don't know you as a person. Lord, you've given us a book. And in this book contains what we need to know about you, about how to live in your world. So, Lord, I pray that by your spirit that you'll help us to understand what Deuteronomy is about today. Lord, that you'll help us to understand even more fully of how we can know you right now in our present circumstances. And so we're going to thank you and praise you. Help us, Lord. Help us to apply what you tell us in Jesus' name. Amen. The title for the message is not mine. I didn't come up with it. I borrowed it from a song written by Michael Card, and uh, you probably have heard of him. The title today really encapsulates what this message is about, that we can know the Lord in the now. And so it may be helpful for us to understand, and let me give you a little bit about what the song is, is all about. It's a prayer, really. It's a prayer of desperation. Brother Michael sees a yawning gap between the Lord and our experience that so many of us have in our relationship with him, especially on Sunday mornings. On a typical Sunday morning, what do we do? We come to church. We sit through a typical Sunday observance, and then we go home, only to return again next week to do it all over again. In the course of this song, Know You in the Now, Michael expresses his desperation about what is so often true of us in our condition when we come together for corporate worship. Lord, I long to see your presence in reality, but I don't know how. Let me know you in the now. I want to make a caveat about his words, however. Of course, the chorus of the song does not describe all of us all the time, every Sunday. You know, because doubtless there are times we experience the fullness of the Lord's joy in his presence. Isn't that true? If you're happy or if you know, notify your face, right? Do a little smile in here. Sometimes we sense his nearness to us in amazing ways. But if we're brutally honest on Sundays, our hearts are probably closer to the desperation Michael Carr described than the fullness of joy that can be ours as believers in Christ. Now, this gap between the Lord and our experience so often describes the condition of our lives day to day, doesn't it? Life itself has a tendency to beat us up. And if we're not careful, we can get distracted away from the Lord when we face the difficulties day in and day out. Now, I think of Peter when he was even in the midst of a miracle. Remember the story, don't you? The disciples were in the middle of a big storm, and they saw Jesus coming walking on the water to them. And and Peter said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And what did Jesus say? Come on. And Peter, the only one to get out of the boat, by the way, came and walked toward Jesus. But something happened with Peter that stopped this miracle in its tracks. And Matthew tells it this way. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. 
And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, Peter began well, didn't he? He walked in the miraculous toward his Lord. But he got distracted by the ferocity of the storm. And he began to sink. In short, he drifted downward. But the Lord saved him. Now, it's no secret that many of us at Grace United struggle. Chronic pain, illness, sorrow over the loss of loved ones, emotional scars. If you're students, you're you're grinding out in school, right, trying to wonder and, and take all the information in and just wondering, you know, is this information useful for me? You know, am I ever going to use it again? But I have a struggle because I have to spit it back out on a test, right? And all of these things and more can take its toll on us. Now, we all love to hear Kathy say, as she often does, we're small, but what? But we're mighty, yes. But where does our might come from? Any true strength that we have is a demonstration of the Lord's power. Didn't Paul hear the Lord say in his moment of weakness that my grace is sufficient for you? For my power is made perfect in weakness. But if we're not careful, the trials of our lives can do more than just distract us. They can threaten to consume us. And the trials we have experienced and continue to do so serve to weigh heavily on our souls. And so we drag ourselves in here on Sunday mornings, don't we? Longing to get refreshment and encouragement and strength from the Lord. But how often do we leave here not refreshed and strengthened? Let me give you another part of Michael Card's song, Know You in the Now. And he prays in lament. Can you tell me why? Was it for this you came and died? A once a week observance when we coldly mouth your words. Now I admit the beginning of this message is not joyful. It doesn't lift us up. We're not in celebration mode here. But my prayer is that we face what is so often a reality, though, on Sunday mornings. My desire is that we spend time in God's word this morning, that we will walk away from this service with a great incentive to take advantage of the many tools and the opportunities that the Lord offers for all of us who are in his family. And I long for all of us to narrow the gap that we often feel between us and him, to get closer to what the Lord wants us to experience in our day-to-day lives, and not just here on Sundays. The fullness of joy, even in the midst of our circumstances, in our trials, in our struggles. The truth is, regardless of our circumstances, we can experience his presence and the real joy that comes along with us knowing him in a relationship. Isn't that right? You're right, we should, we should. Didn't David write, even in the Old Testament, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand, place of honor, are pleasures forevermore. What did our Lord tell his disciples right before he went to the cross? He said, these things I've spoken to you, that what? My joy might be in you, and your joy may be full. Again, This was the night before he was crucified, and he had joy. And this is where I long for all of us to be, on Sunday mornings and even Wednesday afternoons and all points in between. 
It is possible, though, you know, for us to have the fullness of joy. And we have so many things to help us along the way as followers of Jesus. But go with me to a time when things were not nearly as spiritually rich as we so often take things for granted in our day. And what time would that be? What day, what day would that be, you might ask? Well, the answer is found in and around the passage that we're going to talk about today, and that's Deuteronomy chapter 14, 1 to 29. As we remember, Deuteronomy is Moses giving his last charge to the people that he led for 40 years and more. Israel's pastor was also Yahweh's mouthpiece. He was also their intercessor. He prayed for them that God would not destroy them because of their sin. And we experienced Moses for the first 11 chapters of Deuteronomy calling and telling Israel some incredibly good news and some horrifically bad news. Moses reminds the people of the Lord's faithfulness and his love and his power and his grace and his mercy. And Moses also reminds Israel of the condition of their hearts, their rebellious hearts, their stubborn hearts. You know, they were so easily distracted by their sinful appetites and driven by their fears. And all the while, Moses patiently and lovingly but forcefully reminds Israel of their relationship between them and Yahweh. And over and over again, Moses tells the people in the first few chapters of Deuteronomy to love the Lord, to serve him only. But Moses did not only deal with the relationship that Israel and Yahweh had. He was also preparing Israel to do what the Lord wanted them to do for four decades to take the promised land. Cross over the Jordan River. Wipe out seven nations which occupies Yahweh's sacred space. Israel was to dispossess and displace them and the gods the pagan nations were worshiping. Israel, Yahweh said, cleanse my land. This is your inheritance. I'm giving it to you as a wonderful place so that you will settle down and live out in my ways. And I want to do my work through you as well so that the nations around you would see how much better things go when anybody and everybody lives under my loving rulership. In today's passage, again, Deuteronomy chapter 14, 1 to 29, we find Moses continuing to teach the people the Torah, the law of God. And once again, Torah means teaching. And as a master teacher, Moses teaches the Lord's ways to Israel, giving them some specifics about who they are, and as a result, how to live. And we find the Lord, through Moses, once again reminding them of their identity, who they are in verses 1 to 3. They are holy. They're set apart unto him, qualified, qualified to live in Yahweh's sacred space. And as such, they were to show it by the way that they lived their lives, specifically in how they were to obey Yahweh. And the great thing in this chapter is that the Lord didn't leave his people in the dark regarding how they were to show their holiness. In a word, it was all about what they were going to eat. And we're going to see this in verses 4 to 21. And then in verses 22 to 29, we're going to find out some specifics about an all-important issue even in the church today, it's called the tithe. 
As I've done several times in Deuteronomy, I'm going to summarize parts of this chapter for us. So let's read together, though, verses 1 to 2, as Moses reminds the people of who they are and of whose they are. And you are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the earth. Notice the precious truth. Yahweh calls Israel his children, holy, chosen, his treasured possession. But let's not forget who is the one who said this. He is the lone creator of the universe who spoke all things into existence with a word. He's the absolute most high God. The one, again, who spoke the universe into existence, the everlasting one, and so much more. So question, if you were living back in the day and you were to hear those words and that description about you, how would that strike your heart? Kind of ho-hum or absolutely incredible or somewhere in between? Perhaps akin to Michael Card's prayer of desperation where we coldly mouth his words. What could wayward Israel do to gain in awe and wonder in their relationship to the Most High? And without a doubt, the answers are as varied as a number of, of people in Israel. For the truth is, every heart is prone to wonder. How Israel needed continual reminders to keep him at the forefront of their hearts and minds. And what could those reminders be? Well, the answer is found in verse 1 and also in verses 3 to 20. Here we find a couple of don'ts and a whole bunch of do's. One don't is to abstain from engaging in pagan religious rituals regarding the dead. No incisions, deep lacerations where the blood flowed, or the pulling of hair out of one's head to impress the gods of how grief-stricken one is over the loss of their loved one. See, we live in a world filled with death, don't we? And death is so very painful. And Israel as a nation experienced much death over their 40 years in the wilderness. They had very recently mourned the loss of their first high priest named Aaron, the one who kind of led them into idolatry with that golden calf thingy. And Israel was getting ready, though, to mourn the loss of their dear leader, their beloved leader, Moses. It would be centuries later when, Mo, when David would write the truth of God's tenderness toward those who are grieving. Psalm 34 and 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. That's our God. As great as he is, he loves us and he's with those who are crushed in spirit. Now in verses 3 to 20, we see daily reminders of the relationship between Yahweh and his people. Simple but obvious reminders. It has to do with the most mundane, but it ranks right up there with the most important things they and we do. Eating. Now, how many of us like to eat? (laughs) 
Kidding it back, yes, absolutely, yes. So eating is the thing here that Moses is going to address. Now, in this passage, there are four kinds of food listed. Four-footed animals and fish and birds and insects. Yes, I said insects. The Lord is clear. Moses labels some of these things as clean and others as abominations, things that are offensive to God if they eat them. Now, not that these animals and these things are uh, offensive in and of themselves. After all, who made those animals? God did. You know, he didn't think that in and of themselves that they were abomination. But it has to do with Israel keeping the Lord at the forefront of their hearts and minds to show their holiness, to show their separateness from the other nations. Well, how so? With simple, streamlined criteria. And Moses was getting ready to tell them what this criteria is. With the four-footed animals, there were two rules. This is it, just two rules. So they can remember it. They had the animals that they were to eat that were kosher, that were okay. They had to have a, a split hoof and chew the cud. That was it. Every animal that you see that did those things, you can eat those. With the birds or with the fish, there were two rules as well. If they had fins and scales, you could eat those. You couldn't eat any others, but just those. With birds, it was basically one rule. Like a vulture, for example, eat dead things, eat blood, bloody things. Israel was not allowed to eat those. Every other bird, they could. And then Moses only mentioned the clean insects in passing. Remember in Deuteronomy, Moses was not giving a whole lot of new information, but he was giving a recollection divinely inspired recollection of things that were already put out there. And that is true in the case of clean versus unclean insects. And if you're interested in, in, in the list of uh, what bugs you could eat, <laughs> read Leviticus 11. Okay. Now in verse 21, Moses gave another rule. Don't eat anything that dies naturally. You know, like when somebody just happens to come upon an animal that's dead. And I don't know about you, but uh, I think I would just pass that bad boy right on by. Because <laughs> what exactly, Rokio, who would, who would want to eat this? However, this piece of meat could actually be given to a sojourner or could be sold to a foreigner. <laughs> How interesting. <laughs> and in verse 22, Israel was to avoid another pagan practice, boiling a kid in its mother's milk. Yeah, that's right. That's pagan practice. And as one commentator said, a kid is supposed to drink its mother's milk, not be boiled in it. And I think that's good advice. Now, of course, when we're talking about kids, we're not talking about humans, all right? We're talking about animals and kids. These are simple, though, but daily reminders to keep the Lord at the forefront of the minds and hearts of the people. Well, how so? Think of me for a second here about Israel's day-to-day -day activities. What percentage do you think of their day was taken up with food? And I would think quite a waking hours. Now, we take food for granted, don't we? You know, we go to the store, if there's stuff on the shelves. You know, we buy it, we bring it home, we stick it in the microwave or whatever, and then we eat, we enjoy it. Or if we don't want to do all that, we go to a restaurant and have them take care of it for us, right? But not Israel. 
What was their lot day after day? First of all, they had to choose something to eat. They had to go kill that something to eat. They had to prepare it. And then I would imagine after they eat, then they clean up afterwards. A much slower process, taking up a whole lot more time than it would be in our day. But what did Israel have to do to keep in mind regarding every meal that involved animals or fish or birds or insects? It was that simple, those simple rules that marked their holiness to the Lord. They could not drift away from his rules lest they forget which foods were pleasing or revolting to God. You know, the the follower of Yahweh would say, you know, God has called me his precious treasure. I'm not allowed to eat an ostrich. He's allowing me to eat a lamb. And so all the time they had to make those choices based on what those rules were. Now, it would become second nature after a while to kind of go through the list, wouldn't it? You know, I can eat this, I can't eat this, eat this, can't eat that. And so they they were able then to go through and then day by day as as part of their DNA, so to speak, know what to eat and what not to eat. Again, keeping God at the forefront of their minds and hearts. Or it would become second nature to those who would want to eat things that were abominations to the Lord because they would forget, they would choose not to go Yahweh's ways. I'm going to eat lobster because I want to. And Yahweh is displeased. So keeping the Lord at the forefront of their hearts and minds involves the tithe as well. Of course, tithe means a tenth. And the Lord would require all of Israel, once they settled into the land, to set aside a tenth of all the grain that they would grow. The book of Leviticus also tells us that all the fruit trees they would own, 10% of all, of all the fruit that would come off those trees would belong to the Lord as well. And notice how this would be an ongoing thing. Again, keeping the Lord at the forefront of their hearts and minds. For every 10 bushel baskets of grain harvested, set aside one for Yahweh. And not only that, but the firstborn of all the animals, they would have to be set aside for the Lord as well. So they were always thinking, what is Yahweh's portion? What is Yahweh's portion? Everything that they had. And so one can imagine, though, how much food would be produced from one family? What to do with this, all of this food? Well, simple answer, pack it up and take it to the corporate worship center. Process it according to the way the Lord wanted it, because a lot of that was to be given to the priest. They needed to have uh, their sustenance as well. And then, with the rest of it, have a massive picnic. Worship and dinner on the grounds. How wonderful. A ginormous sack lunch together with all of God's people. But what happens if the Lord has blessed so much that there was simply too much to carry from their house to the place of corporate worship? What are they supposed to do? They sold it and they took that money, all of it. They couldn't keep back any of it for themselves. They were to take that money. They were to buy the things that, that they could offer. They could use for the picnic, as in anything that their hearts desire. Again, simple rules to remind them of who they are and the relationship that they have with Yahweh. There's a caveat to this tithe, though. Every third year, the tithe is to stay home, as in the town. 
Everybody's tithe in the town is to be pooled together in food bank fashion. The fact of life is that there are many people the Lord blesses in the towns, but there's some fallen on hard times. Moses even reminds them about this reality in the next chapter in verse 11. He says, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Consequently, a whole lot of opportunities for open-handed generosity in the, in the towns. Here, Moses specifically includes widows and orphans and sojourners. And by the way, the Levite as well, the clergy guy living in their town. And as we remember, the Levite owns no property. And so he couldn't grow any, any food on his own and he couldn't feed his animals because he had no place to put the animals. And so it was up to God's people to take care of him. In other words, feed the parson in the town. The Lord says, in essence, since he renders faithful spiritual service to you, you are to provide for his physical needs. Again, simple rules which serve to keep the Lord front and center in the minds and hearts of the people. Set aside 10% of what the Lord has blessed them with. Go up to the corporate worship center for two years in a row. And then the third year, stay at home. Lather, rinse, and repeat. (laughs) And aren't you glad for the Lord's simplicity? Again, think of the Lord's summary statement that he gave to Israel in the Ten Commandments. Ten words, that was it. And so how can we as Christians in the 21st century take this in? How do we apply this, these food laws, the tithe laws, to us? See, because I can't remember the last time I looked at a pig and said, can't eat that. But praise be to the Lord, the Lord declared what? All foods to be clean. And I praise God for that because bacon cheeseburgers are a huge victory food, right? It's wonderful. But the key for both Israel and us is our need to continually remember the Lord and his ways precisely so that we don't drift from him. For Israel, as I mentioned several times, the food laws were reminders, consistent, constant reminders, that because they were God's special treasure, they could show their love for him by remembering the simple rules of what to eat, how much to take to corporate worship center every year, and to extend with open-handed generosity to those less fortunate in their town every three years. For Israel, their witness to the pagans wasn't some grand and glorious venture to conquer the world for Yahweh. No, for Israel, it was giving God glory for the mundane, obscure, everyday activities of life. And how much more mundane can one get than eating food? It's grand and glorious, yes, but it's mundane nonetheless. Centuries later, Paul would encapsulate this very idea when writing to his friends in Corinth. You know the verse, don't you? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. For whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. One God, the man put it this way. No task was too common to be devoted to the Lord. Everything can be devoted to the Lord and it can be acceptable as worship to him. Now for us, it's the same way. We need reminders too, lest we drift from the Lord. Though Israel and Moses, they had Yahweh speak directly through Moses to them, 
a truly magnificent thing, the Lord has given us many advantages that Israel simply did not have. If only we would take advantage of our advantages. But before I lay these advantages before us, I want to push back just a little bit on Michael Card's song, Know You in the Now, because the chorus goes like this. Lord, I long to see your presence in reality, but I don't know how. Let me know you in the now. Well, I beg to differ with Brother Michael because we can know how to know him in the now. If we take advantages, advantage of our advantages that the Lord has given us. Oftentimes we take for granted. Let me run through a couple of them. The first advantage. As new covenant Christians, we have the law of God written on our hearts. Now, what does that mean again? It means that the law of God, Scripture, is the most important thing in our lives. And so a question is for all of us, is his word in general and his law in particular the most precious thing to you or to me? It's a question to ponder, isn't it? Is that the most important thing in your life? Because if it's written on our hearts, it ought to be. See, because that is how a new covenant believer is described. If we are new covenant Christians, God says, I will write my law upon their heart. It used to be the most valuable thing, most precious thing to us. Is it yours? Jesus said the night before he was crucified, he said this to his disciples in John 15, 10 and 11. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Imagine this. Jesus kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What gave Jesus the fullness of joy? Keeping the Father's commandments. If it's not our highest joy to keep the Lord's commandments, then we need a change don't we? See, Jesus had the fullness of joy because he kept his father's commandments, even though it cost him the cross. That's the first advantage that we have that Israel it's herself did not even have in the days of Moses. The new covenant was not written on their hearts. Second advantage, the Holy Spirit lives within the life of every believer. He did not live in the hearts and lives of every believer in Israel in Moses' day. He only came on the lives of people so that God could accomplish certain things with them and, and for them. But the Holy Spirit gives us, as new covenant Christians, the incentive and the power to do as the Lord commands. Again, John 14, 26 and 27, he says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I've commanded you, all that I've said to you. And as a result, what does he say next? He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Paul told his friends in Philippi that they, and we by extension, were to work out our salvation as an exercise it 
with fear and trembling. For it is God, as in the Holy Spirit, who works in us. To what? To both will and to do, according to his good pleasure. A question. And I, I'm so appreciative of what Brother Greg said earlier today. He said he was, he was glad for the Holy Spirit living within the life of a believer. But when was the last time you gave thanks to the Lord for the Holy Spirit living within you to give you the power and the incentive to do what Jesus asked us to do? Third advantage, weekly opportunities for worship and for fellowship. Israel did not have these advantages. Did you catch all the way through that Israel did not come to the temple or come to the corporate place of worship every week? They did not have weekly gatherings for worship. Did you catch that? Israel was to bring the tithe to the corporate meeting place one time a year. And we're going to see a little bit later in Deuteronomy that the men were supposed to appear before the Lord three times a year. So how many times is that? (laughs) Not very often. Not very often at all. And when the Sabbath rolled around, what was that like? Individual families rested at home. There was no corporate gathering of God's people. During the week, there were no organized or expected opportunities to come together for worship, for encouragement, for fellowship. They were on their own, so to speak. But we have these opportunities. We've got a whole lot on our calendar, but these are opportunities for us to come together for worship, for fellowship, and to conduct spiritual warfare like on Tuesday nights. See, we need continual reminders to keep the Lord at the forefront of our hearts and minds, lest we drift away from the Lord. And these opportunities are reminders of that very thing. Again, our church calendar is chock full of these opportunities. Are we taking advantage of them? Sunday Bible fellowship and and worship. Tuesdays, our time of Behold Your God, as well as corporate prayer or prayer times. Wednesdays, Bible study. The book of James is a fantastic thing. And even during for men's and women's and sometimes youth group meetings as well. And that doesn't even include the things that we have for special opportunities to come together, like Seder coming up this weekend. So a challenge for all of us is, how many opportunities do you avail yourself to come to receive encouragement, to receive instruction, to receive fellowship? We come together so that we can, again, we can have these these reminders that we are God's people. And again, so that we can know him in the now. Let me just give you one more. Fourth advantage, we have access to communication tools of all kinds for the Lord's purposes, if we were use them that way. Old-fashioned phone calls. You pick up a phone, just call your brother, your sister. Hey, let me encourage you. Or, hey, you know, I need some encouragement. Could you encourage me? How about emails or texts or even face-to-face or one-on-one or, or small group relationships? All of these serve to help us, these reminders that we are the Lord's people. Again. Many, many more advantages. We could go on for hours and hours about the advantages that we have that Israel just did not have. But again, the same need that Israel had is the same need that we have. We need constant reminders, don't we? We really can know the Lord in the now. Let's not separate ourselves 
by, by forgetting his ways or forgetting one another. And I mentioned a moment ago about the church calendar being chock full of opportunities for fellowship and encouragement. But there's another calendar in mind, and that is the universal church calendar. Now, we know what next week is, right? Universally, everybody worships the Lord because of his resurrection from the dead. Easter, we call that. And we're going to come together again. I hope all of us do. Six o'clock before the sun comes up out here to worship the Lord and celebrate his resurrection from the dead. Because Christ died. He was buried. He was raised. Hallelujah. But that's next week. But what about today? Today is Palm Sunday. This is the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, declaring himself to be their king. He was humble. He was righteous. He had salvation in him. Remember the story? The people shouted a politically subversive thing. Hosanna, save us, son of David. The people were looking for a king that he might knock off the Romans and set Israel free. Instead, the Lord Jesus, Lamb of God, was crucified for the sins of the world several days later. See, what we call Palm Sunday was extremely significant for Israel. For on their calendar, it was called Lamb Selection Day. That's when the high priest would select a lamb without blemish so that on the Passover he might spill its blood to reenact Israel's deliverance from Egyptian bondage. But as Jesus approached Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day, he did something that might appear strange. Luke gives the details. And when he drew near, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children in you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Indeed, as the high priest selected the lamb for sacrifice, God presented his lamb to Israel. His tears, tears of Jesus, and the pronouncement of judgment spoke loud and clear. As a nation, Israel rejected the lamb of God. And on the day of Passover, Jesus was flogged and he was nailed to a cross. And Luke tells this story. He was now about the sixth hour. And darkness was over the whole land until the ninth hour, three in the afternoon. And while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, surely this man was innocent. At the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, something else happened. The high priest sacrificed the lamb without blemish. And so on that day, two lambs were slain. One the high priest chose and the one that God chose. But God's perfect lamb, absolutely flawless, died to deliver us from bondage to sin. 
and all who repent of their sins and believe and embrace the gospel of the Lamb of God can avert God's holy wrath on them. And so my brothers and sisters, let's press on to know the Lord in the now. The entirety of Michael Card's song presents a challenge. Let me give you the lyrics of the last part of this song. Lord, deliver me. Break my heart so I can see all the ways you dwell in us, that you're alive in me. Is that your heart? That the Lord would break your heart? That he would grant you an insatiable desire to take advantage of the advantages he has given us so that we may know him in the now? As we finish this message, let's recite together what is probably the best known of all the passages, all the statements, especially of Jesus in Scripture. It's John 3.16. Let's recite this together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. And what is eternal life? Our Lord described it this way in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know the Lord both in the now and in the hereafter. This, in large measure, is what it means to have eternal life. To know him in the now is what Jesus came to give us. Let's pray. Lord, you are the ever-present God. You are with us, and you will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, you are so, you are so quick to forgive when we confess. You have pity upon your children. We praise you for this. We thank you. We, we worship you, Lord, because you're worthy of worship. You're worthy of all praise. Lord, we do want to know you in the now. And Lord, you've given us everything that we need to be able to do just that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take advantage of all the advantages that we have that you have given us. Times of worship, times of fellowship, times of individual worship as we sit before our open Bibles in, in languages that we can understand. As your Holy Spirit ministers to us, teaches us these things that we may truly, Lord, learn what your word tells us. We may have fellowship with you and then to obey your word. Lord, that's our heart. That's our desire. Lord, may we truly know you in the now and not just wait until we go to heaven when we die. Lord, we want to know you now. And we don't want to hear another man's religion. We don't want to hear it secondhand. And we want it for ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that you'll give us these these incentives. Just strengthen us, Lord, that we might do these. So now, Lord, I pray as we turn our attention to yet a couple more activities of worship, may we do these things. May we sing. May we give, because, Lord, you alone are worthy, and you are worthy of our worship. And we'll thank you, Father, for these things. In Jesus' name.